I want to tell you about this study that was published a few years ago. There was a paper published in the journal Science back in 2014. This paper looked at 11 studies that all point towards something we all kind of deal with. Though in the last few years it really has become more savoured, but also derided. Participants were asked to wait in a room for various times, no more than 15 minutes in any one of the studies. So they were left alone to themselves. However, they were given the ability to issue to themselves a mild electric shock. As a bonus, they would be paid if they didn't shock themselves. Easy money. So how many idiots couldn't be alone with their thoughts? Well, let's break it along male and female boundaries. 67% of males electrocuted themselves while only 25% of females did. There are many meanings to take away from this study. I take away that this study proves indisputably that the extinction of the human species is all but inevitable. We are over-informed. Hello, I'm Sebastian Stevenson. That study is quite something, isn't it? Who could have guessed how difficult we would find it to be alone with ourselves? How much we don't like thinking on its own. We prefer to entertain ourselves, engage ourselves, be distracted with things and activities and not be bored. And this is what the root of the idea of this episode is. Why are we so afraid of boredom? So much so that we electrocute ourselves rather than be bored for 15 minutes. To help us arrive at an answer, we are going to speak to a philosopher, a historian, and a technologist to get their thoughts on boredom and the ways we should think about it. So smartphones and digital devices have been something that reduced for a lot of people the amount of boredom in their day-to-day lives. That's a good thing, right? Well, maybe not, as we're finding out. These devices are pulling more and more of our attention and maybe filling up time we would rather have to ourselves that time to ourselves could actually be vital to what we think about society, life, the universe, and everything in between. This constant pulling of our attention by apps, devices, and digital services in the name of making use of your time and entertaining yourselves can actually become damaging for how we think about everything. This is The Central Point by James Williams, author of Stand Out of Our Light, Freedom and Resistance in the Attention Economy. He formerly worked at Google, now a writer and academic at the University of Oxford. His book presents a case for expanding our ways of understanding the different modes of attention we have, and why not paying attention to what we are paying attention to can only lead to a less meaningful and purposeful life, but a society that does not know what its values to be. So you might think that's a bit of a leap, though we might be able to change your mind. But let's look at one word. We have this concept of leisure, and I think it most commonly is associated with entertaining yourself outside of your work or or what have you. But it's actually much bigger than sort of, I suppose, just entertaining yourself outside of when you don't have to work. Maybe tell us more about this distinction you make between what the purpose of leisure was and kind of what we understand it to be today, I guess. One of the books, it's this little book that I I found, T.S. Eliot actually wrote the intro for it, but I think it's from the 50s, but not in the sense of kind of idleness or boredom. It's in the sense of the space where the unconscious in us individually and 
in society can kind of do the work of, in a sense, creating who we are. And I think in our time, you know, we've kind of conflated these terms, leisure and entertainment. But entertainment, you know, is kind of just you're consuming something that is pleasurable in the moment. Leisure, I think properly understood, is fundamentally a constructive act. It's the same. It's like the idea of the Sabbath, right? So we should have a day in the week where we're not consciously out there doing things, exerting ourselves, but sitting there and being human, I guess, for lack of a better way of putting it. Mm -hmm. Uh, And so I think that that leisure entertainment distinction is something that's used to be useful to reclaim these days. We've seen these issues in terms of information overload, that we have too much information. Do you feel that that is the right way to look at the problem is that we've actually too much information? I think it's one framing of it. I mean, in my book, I talk about Herbert Simon's observation in the 1970s where um, he points out that you know when information becomes abundant, attention becomes the scarce resource. And so if historically information has been scarce, you know, and you could go out on the street corner and start giving a talk or preaching and people would probably come listen to you because, you know, they had that attentional surplus to spare. Now, if you tried to do that, you probably wouldn't get many people stopping to listen. So the idea that there's been kind of a reversal and now information is abundant, attention is scarce. I think it's not just the abundance of information out there, though, that is the problem. You know, there are always more books than you could ever read, even in a lifetime out there. I think it's it's the abundance, but also like the velocity, the way in which it, it comes at us all the time. As you mentioned, there's an attention scarcity that maybe comes from abundance, and that obviously leads to an attention economy. Maybe tell us, just kind of outline as uh, best you can, kind of what that is and what are the ways we should think about that. I guess, broadly speaking, the attention economy just refers to the situation in which we use some kind of free product and you know, quote unquote free, but pay for it with our attention. And and these products and services that relentlessly compete for our attention to capture as much of it as they can so that then they can ideally resell it to advertisers or whoever. So it's just this relentless global intelligent competition for our attention, which is now like the default business model of the internet. There's no other way to pay for Facebook aside from with your attention. Uh, Same with Twitter. So it's just that competition for our attention that creates these perverse incentives to give us experiences, give us information that kind of diverge from what we would actually want to do with those products or services. You know, Mm -hmm. to the extent that competing for users' attention requires you to sort of prioritize a type of metric or type of goal that, you know, no user actually has. So these tend to be what are called engagement metrics. So things like, you know, number of clicks or views of a page or ad or the amount of time, you know, the number of conversions or purchases. But the fundamental goal is a goal that none of the users actually have for themselves. At least I don't think so. I don't think anybody wakes up and tries to spend as much time as they possibly can on on Facebook or Twitter mm-hmm. each day. You know, these are very like kind of petty goals. So I think to the extent that it orients the whole system around these kind of petty subhuman goals, I think it absolutely is problematic. I think also to the degree to which it creates an environment where then stuff gets increasingly put in front of us that is, you know, outrages us, that divides us from other people in society, that give us a view of the world that is skewed just because it keeps us hooked on the page or on the website. Um, yeah, I think it's absolutely uh, a problem. There is this concept of digital health on Android and then the app on screen time on iOS. So it does seem that maybe Google might have a much more difficult time trying to address some of the issues you have as they are much more fundamentally connected to this new type of advertising. It seems that actually these platform holders are kind of recognizing actually we need to at least give our users some level of control over what kind of things are capturing their attention. Yeah, I mean, I think there are definitely steps in the right direction, but I, I do think they're just the first steps on a much longer journey. I think at the end of the day, it, like I don't think it should be up to the user to self-regulate 
their use in the face of an entire industry that's aimed at throwing stuff at them. It's good that these elements are being put in into to operating systems. And my hope is that they won't just be a kind of one-off PR thing, you know, because right now they're still kind of exceptions to the rule. They're not like the rule itself. It's not like the system is now totally aligned with our goals and aligned with our values. It's I think of it, these things as kind of bandages, whereas there's a deeper surgery that's needed, which is about changing the incentives, whether that's the business models, financing structures, organizational cultures, whatever that drives design. I mean, how, okay, so our, our attention's being grabbed at all sorts of places. You've alluded to what this could mean for in the future. At some point, is it not just kind of, isn't many things competing for our attention to begin with? And, and so why is this especially threatening or concerning to society as a whole? On one level, because there are a lot of things that compete for our attention that we would rather give our attention to, but can't compete as well. So for instance, my wife and I have had our first child in January, He's six months old now. Some days it's I'm sitting there taking care of him. There's literally a competition between giving him eye contact, which is, you know, developmentally important at his stage of life uh, versus, you know, this little box with all the most interesting things in the world, <laughs> like, you know, <laughs> yearning for me to, to like look at it. So, so it's not just competition of things on the device, but also other people in the world. And even it competes with things in our own mind. You know, psychologists, neuroscientists make this distinction between, you know, perceptual and internal information. And so, you know, the stuff coming at us competing for our attention externally is also competing against things like reflection, like memories, this kind of thing that that's internal that so it crowds out things you know within us as well. But then I think, you know, the bigger I talk about this in the book, I think the bigger political risk in all this is that, you know, if our media are like the lens through which we see the world, you know, we see reflections of ourselves, we see others, we see our societies. And that lens is distorted. It, it, it's it's set up in a way to give us the most outrageous thing that makes us angry, the thing that makes us feel like the world is falling apart every day. And that's the lens through which we're looking at the world. Like we're going to act in the world in a certain way. I think there will be a way in which we we wouldn't want to act. So this is why I think that this stuff is is a kind of a first order political problem. Because if we if you know if we can't give attention to the right things in the right way then how are we going to live in the world in the right way? It seems like just a very first order problem. So this this is why I, I really hope we can kind of come up with the right language for talking about this, the right regulatory legal frameworks for this. But uh, we're, we're pretty far behind, I think, where we need to be. But, you know, we'll see how it goes. Well, then is it too late? I, I guess we'll find out. I don't know. I hope <laughs> not. Um, Hopefully we don't get to idiocracy uh, quicker than we think. Yeah, I mean, I I think we're already there actually, but oh, okay. um, well, I mean, yes. we don't have the uh, I mean, there, yeah, we don't have Brondo, <laughs> we don't have Brondo yet at least. Uh, okay. W. Edwards Deming had this quote where he said, "A bad system will beat a good person every time," and I think that's kind of the situation we're in. You know, like I don't think you know most engineers, designers, they don't they didn't go into these fields to make things that distract people, that undermine you know politics, that. Um, <laughs> that take away opportunities for reflection or leisure or co-presence with family. I was actually at a, a session in the Netherlands where people, like probably around 200 designers were there to, to make their apps, their technologies more addictive, more compulsive to hook people better uh, and to improve their model that they used to do that. And they brought me in and to give a talk on the ethics of it. And there was one point in the Q&A where I asked all of them, I said, how many of you want to live in this world you're creating? How many of you want to live in a world where 
technologies are trying to hook us, trying to make these compulsive behaviors and, and compete for our attention. Not a single hand went up. There's almost another kind of harm in, there, in that, I think, in that the idea that we have all these people then who are generally good people, smart people, but they've been conscripted into this cause that none of them actually want to be the case. There's a sadness to it, but I think there's also a hope in that too. And those people within their organizations can start questioning the goals they've been given, can start questioning the business models that really define those goals they've been given. I think that there, there's another the route there for a kind of change that I think is really urgently needed here. So this attention economy is a new concept that has come about with digital technology. Boredom, though, has been with humanity as long as we, humanity, have been around. So did boredom frighten people then, who didn't have access to instant entertainment or improvement, when you were more constrained in what you could do? This is where Peter Tuhi comes in with his book, Boredom, A Lively History. The book explores what the value of the emotional state of boredom is and has been reviewing 3,000 years of history with neurological and psychological theories. Peter is a professor of classics in the University of Calgary. Have you found that our relationship to that state has changed over time? I don't believe so because this fairly rigid application of the notion of emotion that I'm saying, that emotions themselves don't really change. They're not invented. They don't disappear. They're just perhaps not as common in some worlds as others. Boredom, what bedevils everybody when they talk about boredom is trying to define it. I think that nothing too much has really changed, depending on the definition you've got. So if I were to define boredom to you, I'd say it's an emotion of mild disgust. And it's something that's produced by temporally unavoidable and predictable circumstances. That's a bit of a mouthful, but disgust, things are unavoidable, but temporally, and they're predictable. So those three things. The disgust, as far as I can see, is pretty important because disgust is one of these aversive states. The, these psychologists who work in terms of evolution would say to you that you're disgusted at, at corrupting food, at rotting corpses, and you're averse from them for good reasons because they're dangerous to your health. The emotion of disgust is trying to push you away from it. And I think that's how it works with boredom. Anybody who's been bored a lot knows that it's not a pleasant circumstance. Somehow or other, it's something that you want to get away from as quickly as you can. And often, if people were to think of a colour for boredom, it's either going to be a vomitous green or, more likely, a dreary and vomitous brown. You don't have to believe me on that, but that's been <laughs> my experience talking to people. There's mm -hmm. colours for things. And uh, boredom, which was pointed out to me by one of my children too, if, it's, if, if people are trying to paint how it looks, it, it often involves flat surfaces as well as the brown, flat surfaces and squares. Things will never look the same once you get that into your head. <laughs> funny, um, funny enough, when I think of uh, boredom, I think kind of grey. I don't know why. I suppose it's kind of an in-between colour or something like that. That's the link with depression, you see, I think. You know, you'd, you'd never say, you'd, you'd never deny greyness to a depressed person, would you? Mm. Okay. Interesting. This was written, uh, your, your book, Boredom and Lively History, was written a couple of years ago. Um, I don't know if you've had any, any subsequent thoughts of your own uh, after publishing and working on that book. Obviously, I'd imagine for quite an intense period, uh, have you found that there are things that, any thoughts of yours or, or conclusions that have evolved from review, thinking over that book in your uh, spare time? <laughs> 
you've actually just been been hearing them to be honest yeah, yeah. i'm telling you what i what i think now i think in the period after i wrote the book when people would ask me about it what they wanted to hear was a link between boredom and creativity particularly and boredom and digital devices in some way or another for the longest time people felt that the problem with tablets with smartphones were that as soon as you've got an inkling of boredom you whip your phone out in the train and you look at it so nobody's getting bored anymore and everybody knows well that's what they say everybody knows that a bit of boredom is good for creativity I'd like to think that things are swinging away from it. But I look at the last few books that have been published on boredom. There's a bit of a run the last couple of years. Maybe it has a little bit. I think why maybe that's going away, and here we're talking about what I think now, and is that boredom isn't pleasant. I think I fudged the issue when I talked about it in the past, that boredom's not particularly good for creativity at all, I don't think except insofar as it drives you away from a situation which is can be stultifying. The example I think I gave was when I was a kid, I hated the Easter masses, the Easter services. You know, they start on Thursday and they didn't seem to end till 12 o'clock on Sunday. I, I always thought it was boring beyond redemption, painful beyond redemption. And the value in that experience, looking back, is it probably drove me away from that sort of religion for the rest <laughs> of the <laughs> I thought this stuff is making my brain shrink. Yeah. And sorry, and peace to all the religious out there. That's just me talking. Mm -hmm. But y you can see what I'm getting at, that boredom is good for you insofar as it drives you away. It's a warning to get out of the situation that you're in. Now, I said that in the book, but I fudged it subsequently. So I don't, I don't think it's a good thing to be bored. I don't think parents owe it to their children to let them be bored. Rather the reverse. Boredom is bad for the brain. Excessive boredom in laboratory animals seems to be linked with the shrinking of the size of the brain. If you want your kids to do well, try and look to circumstances that will stop them being bored if it's humanly possible, which it always isn't. Often isn't, I should say. I want to mention about the boredom creativity thing. That, I guess, maybe people will see you're not maybe penciling in or you're writing, you're maybe sitting and just thinking to yourself, maybe that has been mistaken for boredom and that you're doing nothing, but maybe you're meditating on kind of what you're trying to conceive of conceptually and, and write that down on a paper. Is there a possible misunderstanding of maybe where boredom and creativity lie or, or, or how do you feel? I think, I think exactly as you say it is. I think the notion that daydreaming is good for for creativity, whatever the word means, perhaps I think it's usually meant as something like problem solving these days, but that there does seem to be a strong link between it, that when people are uninvolved or as disengaged as they'd say these days, the, the executive area, whatever it is, the problem solving portion of the brain seems to light up. That's daydreaming and daydreaming is not necessarily boredom. I mean, I don't think I could have got through school without it. I love daydreaming. Who doesn't? Yeah. But that's probably good for you. And it's probably good for problem solving. And, and if you're interested in the arts, maybe it's good for helping you write or create music or whatever it is you do. But that's not boredom, I don't think. It might look boring, but I don't think it is. 
uh, yeah, it's, it's, it, I suppose in a way when you say that the, there are separate things that possibly daydreaming tr- is triggered by being bored in, in the situation you're in or something like that. Um, it's I suppose that's probably where separating it out kind of makes it a better understanding of actually boredom is something that is an indication of, of you know, you should be doing something else and maybe daydreaming is what you should be doing or hope to do. <laughs> yeah, yeah, I, th- I think it's like that so boredom could trigger daydreaming but when you can't get to sleep and even if you're not particularly peeved about being insomniac you may daydream and you're not particularly bored at all you just do it i think i saw the statistics for daydreaming recently and they're alarming i've forgotten them i'm sorry but people do it all the time so it seems as you say to be separate to boredom how has your relationship to boredom changed uh, since uh, <laughs> writing the book? <laughs> have to ask. I, I said after I wrote the book, someone asked me the same question. I said it. I thought it'd cure me, and it didn't cure me at all. That's how I felt. I'm a little bit older now than when I wrote the book. Death seems to stare me a little more closely in the face, and I see more people who've died. And I think it. I think it helps with boredom. Really, I think. What are you going to go and get bored for? You know, you, you, you're going to be in the soil, and you'll practice the ultimate boredom soon. So just just relax. So that confusion between being bored and daydreaming is certainly a clarifying stance, but daydreaming is certainly something that is a response to becoming bored a way to move off that state. But while daydreaming is nice, why is daydreaming our go-to solution for being bored? To be more precise, why do we dream something else while we are bored? What does that mean for our lives? Lars Svensson, professor of philosophy in the University of Bergen, many years ago wrote a book called Boredom, A Philosophy. And so here are the ways he categorizes boredom. What are the different varieties of boredom? I mean, you have the, the situative boredom that can strike you at, at any moment. If you're sitting at an airport waiting for a plane to arrive, or if you're going to a really boring lecture or something like that, that's the everyday variety of boredom. Then there's repetitive boredom, where you do something that, well, it used to be fine, but it's sort of lost its meaning, its sense to you due to sheer repetition. But what I find most interesting is existential boredom or deep boredom or profound boredom in which your soul feels empty, the world feels empty, everything is empty. And that can resemble a clinical depression. But there are some differences and studies have been made in which one has attempted to distinguish between them. And the component of meaning is crucial here. Someone suffering from a clinical depression will not necessarily experience any lack of meaning. Things can be deeply meaningful to the depressed person, but they have become, to some extent, inaccessible. Whereas such a lack of meaning is absolutely crucial to the experience of existential boredom. Obviously, a lot of time has passed since that book has been published. And have you found your relationship to the very writings you put down has changed over time or or is it broadly similar or a bit more refined than what you'd written down in in 1999? The book from 1999, I complain a little bit too much in that book (laughs) rather than (laughs) trying to be constructive. So when I reread that book some time ago, I got a little bit impatient with my former self and I thought, get a grip. But what sort of grip should one get? 
And I think that this is again where the notion of caring comes in. It's actually good historical reasons for attaching caring to boredom. The pre-modern variety of boredom was called Arcadia, also one of the seven originals of one of the seven deadly sins, sometimes mistakenly translated to English as sloth. It's essentially a variety of boredom. It has two parts. There's the privative A first, and then there's Kedos, which means not caring. The very origin of this whole phenomenon literally translates to not caring. And it's by caring that you get an identity. It's by caring about something that you become someone. And it's by caring about something that you get any sort of meaning in your life, that your life gets a direction. This is really the task we all have to deal with. You have to figure out what you care about. And when you think about that, you can get surprised that, well, a lot of the stuff I spend most of my time on is stuff that I really don't care that much about. Whereas I don't put much effort into the stuff that I, I think I care about. Then there's the second question. Do I care about what I should care about? And you might find that you care about the wrong things. Uh, you should care about something other than what you actually care about. And if you manage to get those two in sync so that you care about what you think you should care about, and you furthermore, you're able to put that into practice, that's actually what gives shape to your life. Then I'd say you have as much meaning and as much freedom in your life as you can realistically hope for. That's it. Something that has obviously come up in the last few years, and obviously since the book has been published, is the the invention of the the smartphone and the subsequent industry that has come around that device. Obviously, yeah. th this was maybe obviously the ultimate goal was to have higher functionality, but has led to a situation where you see media articles advocating to actually put the phone down and and be slightly as as you I suppose quote unquote bored. Um, have you found that um, obviously now that in a way boredom can become in some ways has to become a conscious act that it, it's changed how think about being bored? Part of the problem with these smartphones and so on, they're really machines that devour time. And that's what we use them for. It, it's striking. I mean, and, and of course, I myself also do this. If, if I'm sitting in my living room with my wife and my wife gets up to go into another room to do something for two minutes, what's the first thing I do? I pick up my phone and I log on to Facebook and so on. It's a, it is as if the prospect of having two empty minutes <laughs> is intolerable. <laughs> uh, and of course, that is so strange. And what happens is that all these pockets of empty time that we used to have are being eliminated. And we fill those pockets up with pastimes. And I mean, the very notion of a pastime is interesting. The content is insignificant. What matters is simply that one passes the time. So rather than seeing time as an opportunity, as something you can fill with something meaningful, you see that time as something that has to be done away with. And I think what we miss out is that in these empty pockets of time, we actually had the possibility of going inside, of looking inside ourselves, relating to ourselves. These days, we're hardly ever alone, because when, whenever we're alone, we can simply log into Facebook on our phones, and the entire social domain is there with us immediately. And I think that we lose a space of reflection. 
And I think that in that space of reflection, we could perhaps have found something slightly more meaningful than yet another video of a cute cat, even though I adore videos of a cute cat. <laughs> I suppose, yeah, there, there's a, this relationship between loneliness and boredom, as you mentioned, and this device has become a way to fill up loneliness doing something, even if these social networks, there's obviously various studies about people feel actually more lonely because they're having all of this life scrolling by them from their other friends as well. So we've got the, we're in, a, in a, an unusual cycle of desiring to live be less lonely but at the, as a result of it feeling more lonely well actually i looked into that when when i, when I did my book on, on on loneliness the people who are the most active on social media are also the people who have the most face-to-face encounters with others they're just re- they, ha- they have really big social needs but it, it does not quite seem to be the case that this virtual world, this social media, is actually displacing ordinary encounters to a very great extent. So I think that perhaps the problem today isn't that we're not sufficiently social, it's perhaps that we're hyper-social, we're too social. The, the problem is that others are always there, in person or on Facebook, Twitter or whatever. You're constantly interacting with others to an increasingly less uh, extent relating to yourself. So I think that if there is a problem of loneliness slash solitude today, it's not that there has become so much loneliness because actually the numbers haven't risen and the appointment of a minister for loneliness in the UK was a really, really bad idea. It hasn't increased. The problem is not an increase of loneliness, but a decrease of solitude. Mm-hmm. That's where the problem is. Obviously, with people who are more active on social media, tend to obviously be, have more social lives than possibly others. For the people that maybe aren't as socially active, they is is it because they're kind of feeling a pressure to actually to have less solitude in their lives. That they're kind of in a way wasting their lives not with others. If if you know what I mean. Yeah, of course. There is this tendency today that being visible, being seen by others, is terribly important that we get so much of our self-estimation through the eyes of others. And, of course, the problem with that is that we, to an increasing extent, we lean on others and deprive ourselves of the capacity also to lean on ourselves, to find some sort of foundation in ourselves. And if you don't have that capacity for, of course, not being completely self-sufficient, because none of us are self-sufficient, we our lives are interwoven with others, but some capacity for self-sufficiency, you will live a tough life, because you cannot always lean on others. And I suppose to, to even circle it back a little bit as well, I wonder then it, when we're bored, and is that a kind of inner voice saying, actually, this is not whatever it is that, say, if I'm trying to appease somebody by doing an activity of some kind, but actually I'm bored. And that's an inner voice of some description kind of going, this is not you. This is this is not you being truthful to yourself. Yeah. So this is not providing you with the meaning you actually need in order to live a fulfilling life. This is dysfunctional. And I think that you should listen to that voice. Friedrich Nietzsche, the German philosopher, wrote that whoever entrenches himself completely from boredom also entrenches himself from himself. Because boredom actually tells you something about yourself, about how you live your life. 
And that's also why to have the immediate response of fleeing from boredom when it strikes you is probably a bad idea. You should listen to what boredom tells you. So why are we afraid of boredom? I think it might be because it tells us that we need to change. Change what we are doing in the moment, or maybe a more radical change. We may also be afraid of self-reflecting because it may mean we have to change a lot more of our lives when we discover we are situationally bored or existentially bored. Maybe our friends are boring because they don't align with what we emotionally need. Or maybe we might feel we should be interested in something because it's important, but we just can't bring ourselves to be interested. Or we don't have the meaning it used to have for us. It's possibly a resistance to conformity, to not fit and discovering more of our individuality. Boredom does seem to have been conflated with allowing yourself to daydream or be idle, to always be doing something, to always contribute to something, to not wasting any time you have on this earth, to just be. That's one thing I have learned, to have conflated boredom with being idle or daydreaming, which I think boredom triggers and brings us to. The services we use all the time don't really allow for opportunities to wonder, because if we are wondering about something, we search for the answer or act on this intention. So what we might be searching for when we say we allow ourselves to be bored is to give ourselves permission to dream about change. Our executive producer is Alan Bennett and Patty O'Leary. Special thanks to Chris Mesker, and I'm Sebastian Stevenson. We are a part of the Headstuff Podcast Network. Check out our other podcasts at headstuff.org. Subscribe in Apple Podcasts or Spotify or wherever you get your podcasts to make sure you don't miss out. If you like the show, please rate and review us on Apple Podcasts. It helps more people find the show. If you have any comments or suggestions, email us, overinformed at headstuff.org. They might show up on a future episode and we'd love to hear from you. You have been overinformed. This podcast is part of the Headstuff Podcast Network.